It is Tuesday, October 24th, and this is Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. Sure is Studio 2. I'm Avi wolf <laughs> Coming up on the show today, Cherry, what the H mm. is a hydrogen hub. The federal government is throwing billions behind this clean energy idea with a good chunk of that mm-hmm. headed to our region. But some folks are concerned that, quote unquote, clean hydrogen simply is not clean enough. And we're going to clear that up today. And we welcome your calls and your comments because I know you have them. You can call 888-477-9499 or you can email studio2 at whyy.org. And later on, Avi, we're going to be playing some gospel music, a personal favorite of mine. And I'll take you behind the scenes of a competition I got to host. And let me just say, it was joyful. I love that. Yeah. I'm sorry I missed it. Well, I guess I'll get to hear it today. Yeah, it was so good. Um, In a few minutes, WHYY's Nicole Leonard will join us with an update on what the city is doing right now to address drug overdoses. And that's a story that she's been following for quite some time. Some stories that we're following this morning, Mm -hmm. Sherry. Uh, We'll start with the great disappointment that has cast a gray cloud over all of us this morning. Our hopes were high. The Phillies had a chance to punch their ticket to the World Series last night with Mm -hmm. a win over the Arizona Diamondbacks. Did not go great. They mm. lost 5-1, to one, which sets up a winner-take-all Game 7 tonight in South Philadelphia at 8 o'clock. Cherry, I think one of the issues mm. is that the Phillies had gotten used to your encouragement. Mm. Those two words of encouragement you so often like to utter. And Go you d- Phillies. Go Phillies. There you have it, folks. <laughs> Go Phillies heading into the first Game 7 in franchise <sighs> History again. That will be tonight at eight oh seven, and uh, now the Phillies know to go because you told them. Thank yes, you, and Charlie. I have my fingers and toes crossed. I mean, and my eyes too, but only eyes. for a second because I do, you know, got to get back to work. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for them. Um, there was an Enquirer story, I believe, published this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, they they asked a bunch of prominent Philadelphians what their walk up song would be if they were a player on the Phillies. This is the song that that someone plays. That you the walk out. Plays yeah. when, the, when the batter walks to the plate. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. that's what it. Okay. <laughs> what did you think it was? The one when you walk out in the beginning. No, but this no, is no. no, no, no this no. is every time to play. you come okay. up to bat, they play a little clip oh. of some music, and it's your walk up song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to be honest. Answers were not good. I'm not going to call anyone out. You can go read the story on the Inquirer's website. But I, it, it's, it was it's, funny. It was funny. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's a walk-up song. You don't, you don't dance out. You don't saunter out. You don't sashay out. It's a music that you would play while you were you walking. Strut? You sort of strut. Mm. And a lot of the songs, I think, did not capture the spirit. I'm going to put myself in the line. I want to hear your walk-up song. What my walk-up song would be. Let's hear this. This is the song that I would walk walk up to if I Mm -hmm. were batting for the Phillies. Let's play it. You feel that? It's hard. This is Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum. Gospel reference, by the way. Uh Mm Uh-oh. See that? You feel that? Yeah. Yeah. And then you get that little kick up there. Yeah. I feel like you're going to be like, that's what you're walking (laughs) and you're trying to like intimidate, but also you need like a recognizable riff so that every time people hear it, they know that's obvious. I think you probably should have gave them the rules before they filled out the the survey or whatever. Some people people were were ill-informed. That's all I'll say about that. All right. Let's transition to something a little less light. (laughs) Yes, for sure. Yesterday, Senator Bob Menendez pleaded not guilty to a federal indictment alleging that he acted as a foreign agent for the Egyptian government. 
So the senator was arraigned for the second time in a month in a Manhattan federal court. And if you recall, an indictment was filed last month charging Menendez and his wife Nadine with taking bribes. And these bribes included gold bars, exercise equipment, Mm -hmm. a Mercedes Benz cash. Um, from three New Jersey businessmen, they also pleaded not guilty. Now, this new indictment charges that Menendez acted as a foreign agent, secretly aiding the government of Egypt, including by sharing sensitive U.S. government information. It also alleges that Menendez, his wife, and businessman Wauz Hanna willfully and knowingly combined, conspired, confederated, and agreed together and with each other to have Menendez unlawfully act as this agent of a foreign principal. So at this point, Menendez has stepped down as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. People are calling on him to resign. He said no at this point. And New Jersey Congressman Andy Kim is challenging him and has already raised a million dollars. So we'll see what happens. And we talked about those polls last week that suggest a lot of New Jerseyans are sick of Bob Menendez. So we will see how that goes. Mm -hmm. A crime of a somewhat less sprawling nature, unless you count the dimes sprawled Mm. all over the parking lot. You might remember this from earlier in the year. There was... um, a tractor trailer parked in Northeast Philadelphia full of dimes, like two million dimes. I think they were going to the U.S. Mint. Mm-hmm. Um, and someone some, someone or group of people broke into them and took a bunch of the dimes, and then a bunch of them were spilled all over the parking lot, and people said, what the heck is going on? Well, we just un- heard charges announced against the four men mm. who the government believes perpetrated this crime. And I have to say, after reading the details, assuming these allegations are correct, this crime story has sort of been downgraded from heist to something a little bit less interesting because it doesn't seem like these guys actually knew there were dimes in the tractor trailer. They had just been holding up tractor trailers around the region Mm. looking for valuable stuff. And then they opened it and realized, whoa, this one is full of dimes and quickly tried to stash a bunch of the dimes away. And it doesn't even seem like did a very good job of that. So it was kind of sloppy, but it looks like they got the folks. Yeah, it's hard to get away when you come up with bag loads of dimes. Right. They literally went... Clue! <laughs> red flag! You might be the dime thief. You know yes. what I mean? Like, you might be, yes. Come on, people. The um, They apparently did try... Again, allegations not proven, but the government thinks that they did try to take some of these like coin star machines and cash them in if they did not get oh, very far. Lie. This is serious. It is serious. And I feel bad, obviously, for the truck driver. Yeah, because um, he was asleep. Yeah. Um, but it it is, they, they did not think it out and they did not seem that they actually knew that they were yeah. robbing a truck full of dimes. And they, because they had been taking crab legs and um, well, the, more interesting things like shrimp. Right. Well, there trucks. was some intrigue too, because you thought, well, maybe these people knew there were like, Hundreds yeah. of thousands of dollars worth of dimes in here, and they had a plan, but they didn't. It they thought it like, was meat or beer. Yeah, it looks like they yeah. had no plan. And um, so, Avi, mm-hmm. imagine going to school. Mm-hmm. There was no credits. There was no deadlines. And you could redo your assignments as many times as necessary for you to get it by the end of the semester. Works for me, yeah. Yeah. Well, Philadelphia Science Leadership Academy Middle School, 5th to 8th grades, they're embracing this new method. Mm-hmm. It's called... Grading for equity. It eliminates non-academic factors from grades. It focuses in on mastery, on deep and meaningful learning and assessments that are a true reflection of kids' knowledge. And they don't give advantage to one student or another. You can go over and over and over again as long as you get it. No extra credit. Mm -hmm. None of that stuff Mm -hmm. that I used to use back in the day (laughs) to to get get the advantage, okay? 
The students instead will only be graded on their performance. And at the end of the grading period, they can, and that will only happen at the end of the grading period. So they can do as many redos until that time. And they can start out with a C or even a D and move their way up to an A by doing these redos. So it's a Science Leadership Academy Middle yes. School in uh, University City, West mm-hmm. Philadelphia. Shout out to the Inquirer. Did a nice story on this. Yes. Um, I'll just full disclosure. I was at the opening of this school when they mm-hmm. opened it a few Aww. years back. I know the principal a little bit, but I think I think I still have a you know unbiased take, which is this is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's it's an experimental school anyway, so it's not like everyone's and, doing it. And you know it. what? That's some the people whole say point of the school. some people say school doesn't really teach kids anything that it only teaches them how to get good grades right. instead of actually learning something and this is an approach that would focus on actually learning and one of the points that the school leaders make is that weirdly grades are like an average of everything you do over a semester so like if you do really well in the beginning that somehow counts for just as much as doing really well at the end even mm-hmm. though it's what you know at the end that actually counts yeah. so if you fail the first test but you ace the final one you've proven that you learned something and you would think you should get an a instead of a c right um and so it does sort of intuitively make some sense mm-hmm. now maybe it creates some weird incentives that people could take advantage of i don't know but i thought it's an interesting idea and like i said it's an experimental school so they are supposed to experiment and if the experiment goes well, then other people can use it. I say pretty much no harm, no foul here. Yeah, for sure. So we're going to transition now to our newsmaker. Yes. Um, and this is a story familiar, uh, at least sort of on the broad scale, to many of us. Mm-hmm. Fatal overdose deaths in Philadelphia are soaring. Last year, 1,413 people died from unintentional drug overdose. The vast majority of those deaths attributed to fentanyl. To combat this growing epidemic, the city is trying a new approach, sending outreach workers door to door to hand out the life-saving overdose reversal drug, naloxone. This program is called Philly Counts. Workers hope to knock on 100,000 doors in hotspot zip codes. And here to tell us more about the initiative is WHYY's health and science reporter, Nicole Leonard. Nicole, welcome back to Studio Two. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, Nicole, want to jump right in. Why has the city opted to go door to door? Well, the big thing about it is that, you know, they're saying that a lot of people who can get access to these things like naloxone or fentanyl test strips, a lot of the times they have to volunteer information that they are someone who uses drugs, that they might have a substance use disorder. But not everybody is comfortable doing that. And so by going door to door, you're not asking those questions, right? Mm. These workers are not asking people in the house if they know anybody who uses drugs or if they themselves use drugs. They're just there to say, hey, we're just going to give you this stuff. And if you can use it, great. If you know somebody who can use it, great. Give it to them. And so they're sort of taking a more active approach and giving it to everybody, as many people as they can in these zip codes, um, without anybody asking them for it. No stigma, no judgment. Exactly. You, you mentioned these zip codes. Talk about the zip codes, because that's a big part of this story. It's not just the zip codes that have become associated publicly with the overdose epidemic in our city. Where are they going and why? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot, there's a big common misconception that drug use and people who suffer from it are only in Kensington and Allegheny in Philadelphia, right? It's the site of the biggest open air drug market on the eastern seaboard. A lot of people congregate there. It's very visible drug use. But a lot of the harm reduction uh, services are also concentrated there because a lot of people are there. And so then you branch out into other parts of the city and people are still dying from drug overdoses in other parts of the city and a lot of times in private residences. 
places, behind closed doors, not in groups of people, alone. And so these are zip codes that the city has identified that they have seen significant numbers of these. And I was out with outreach workers last week, and one of these zip codes, the 19140 zip code in the Franklinville uh, neighborhood, and 85 people in that wow. zip code died last year from drug overdoses. And that, that was surprising to a lot of residents who, who lived there. Yeah, that's a that's a pretty good chunk. We lost more than 1,400 people last year from overdoses. And what surprised me, and we talked about it on the show recently, was that the number of black people, um, and specifically black men, has jumped significantly as far as overdose deaths. Can you talk about that and how this door-to-door effort would target that community. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, the city said just from the year prior to last year, so 2021 compared to 2022, a 20% jump in overdose deaths among black residents. That's a really significant jump. And they're finding, the city is finding that stimulant use combined with opioids like fentanyl is driving some of that. Um, And outreach workers are saying, you know, black and brown people have really been targeted by arrests, incarceration, child welfare charges, they may be less likely to raise their hand and say, I'm a person who uses drugs, I need help. And so this door-to-door outreach, making it more anonymous, going to people, is trying to cut through a lot of that stigma and and sort of volunteer of information to get this to people without them having to identify as somebody who uses drugs. And can you talk about that reluctance a little bit more? Because this kind of extends beyond the use of drugs. I mean, because I think about the crack epidemic. There wasn't a lot of help there. And now uh, the same community is being impacted by opioids. Exactly. There's a historical component to this, right? People in vulnerable communities, communities, especially black and brown residents, they have been, a lot of people have been targeted by the judicial system and the law enforcement system for other things in the past, like the quote unquote crack epidemic. Even heroin use was something that a lot of people thought only occurred Mm -hmm. in, you know, Mm -hmm. cities and black and brown communities. And so that reverberates to where we are now. Now, you would understand why somebody from those communities would be hesitant to seek out source resources by themselves. And so this initiative is, is trying to get around that and get resources to people who may not actively seek it out because of those punitive outcomes that people have experienced in the past. Real quickly, a caller asked us, what is in the tote bags that they're giving out as part of this door-to-door effort? And we have about 40 seconds here. Yeah, they're bundles of information. Some of it is resource guides and information like numbers to call in the city mm-hmm. of Philadelphia and around the area for if they're interested in substance use treatment, if somebody wants to seek out treatment. Also included are fentanyl test strips, which you people can use to you know check their substances and supplies to see if fentanyl is mm. even present, because some people don't even know. Yeah. And then Narcan, which is a brand of naloxone, and it's the opioid overdose reversal medication. And city workers want to make this as normal as having like ibuprofen in your medicine cabinet. Yep. Stick it in maybe every home. Know what it is. It. Know how to use it. Exactly. Be familiar with it. And they have on those jackets. So these are just folks that are, you, you should be able to clearly identify the Philly Counts team. What do they look like? How will you know it's them? Yep, they... they're in bright blue jackets. They're all the same color. And you might be already familiar with them because a lot of these workers went out to get people registered for the election. They Mm -hmm. went out to get people COVID resources and vaccines. So people might already be familiar, but they will be in those bright blue jackets uh, matching with the city of Philadelphia logos on them. Great information. Thank you. That is Nicole Leonard, health and science reporter for WHYY. Thanks for being with us, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, we're talking about hydrogen hubs. Stick with us. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Welcome back to Studio Two. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. Earlier this month, President Joe Biden was in Philadelphia to announce a multi-billion dollar funding package to create seven hydrogen hubs all around the country. When it comes to charging our cars or powering our homes, all we need is clean electricity. But when it comes to manufacturing things like steel, aluminum, and other materials, factories need to process materials at over 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit to get that done. That's where hydrogen comes in. Now, one of these hubs will be right here in our region. It's called the Mid-Atlantic Clean Hydrogen Hub, or Mach 2 for short. And here is the good news on hydrogen. It's one of the most abundant elements on Earth, and the idea behind these hubs is to develop cleaner, greener ways to turn hydrogen into energy, which sounds great, right? Yes, but some environmentalists are questioning whether it's really clean enough. They've pointed to a lack of transparency from the Department of Energy when it comes to the goals for hydrogen production and the use of fossil fuels in that process. Now, to walk us through what hydrogen energy is, how these hubs will work, and what they mean for our region, we're joined by Temple University engineering professor Corey Budishak. Corey, welcome to Studio Two. Thank you, Cherry. Also with us is Colin O'Mara, board chair of Mach 2 and president of the National Wildlife Federation. Colin, welcome to you as well. Thank you, Cherry and Avi. Listeners, do you have questions or concerns about hydrogen energy? Give us a call. The number, 888-477-9499. You can also email us, studio2 at whyy.org. So I want to start with you, um, Corey. I just want to start with the basics of hydrogen and hydrogen as an energy source, because Mm -hmm. we understand it's the first element in the periodic table here. It's abundant. But how do you translate that into an energy source that we can actually use? Yeah. So I think sometimes energy source is misleading. Mm -hmm. A lot of times we think about nuclear power as an energy source or solar energy or fossil fuels like coal or natural gas. But hydrogen's more like electricity and that's an energy carrier. Mm. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you think about it, a lot of times what we do to make electricity is we burn fossil fuels and then we generate the electricity and then we use it, right? And hydrogen's very similar in that, that manner. Right now, most of the time, we get hydrogen from natural gas in a process called steam methane reforming. But basically the idea is we just use that natural gas as energy to create hydrogen. But in the future, and what Mach 2 is hoping to do, is to generate the hydrogen by taking the molecule of water, which is two atoms of hydrogen and one atom of oxygen, H2O, Mm -hmm. and using the energy of electricity from solar panels or wind turbines or something like that to split those, those molecules apart into hydrogen and oxygen. And then we can use the hydrogen as an energy source Um, similar to like we do electricity. Quick follow-up, would the hydrogen then be a gas? Would it be a liquid? What what would it be? In in general, normally hydrogen's a gas. It's the, like you said, it's the first um, Mm -hmm. element on the periodic table, so it's super duper light. Um, So it's very difficult to have in in liquid form. 
Um, but that's in general, we could use it in lots of different ways. We could use it as a gas, but we could also um, transform it into all sorts of different things. So there's research being done to try to figure out how to make it um, power airplanes as jet fuel or, mm-hmm. or do other things like that. So we can do a lot of things with it, but what we'd get out of the initial process is the hydrogen gas. And Corey, a quick follow-up on that. Once it is transformed into this energy source slash carrier, what are its advantages vis-a-vis other types of substances? Yeah, so I just mentioned jet fuel, and I think that's a good example because we can kind of wrap our minds around it. Imagine an electric-powered airplane. There are some kind of prototypes out there and and whatnot, but batteries are super heavy, right? So Mm. it's very, very difficult to, you know, design a 747 that's going to that's going to be powered all, only on electricity from batteries right because you need so much juice there right yeah. right and so you need so much weight too and that's not mm-hmm. an ideal situation for an airplane right so if we could use this hydrogen t- as a route to generate um, basically renewable jet fuel that's carbon neutral then that could be a replacement for the jet fuel because once once it in, when it's in use, right, it's mm-hmm. not emitting from the use of it, right? So the idea would be if we were let's say we had hydrogen, right? Mm-hmm. We would if we wanted to make this jet fuel, what we do is we'd make a jet fuel that's very similar to today by grabbing carbon dioxide out of the air and combining it with that hydrogen, mm-hmm. right? And making a jet fuel. Then when the jet fuel is burned in the airplane, it would emit carbon dioxide, but it would be neutral because right. we'd be sucking it's the same it in. stuff you already grabbed. Right. Right. Okay. Exactly. Very interesting. Colin, I want to bring you into the conversation because I want to talk about Mach 2. Um, Explain, you know, our region is getting this chunk of money from the federal government and it will um, help kickstart it. What is Mach 2 and what exactly will it do for our region? Yeah, no, thank you, Cherry, and thanks for having us on and covering this. The the genesis of Mach 2 goes back to when President Biden signed the infrastructure bill last year uh, in 2021. And I started looking at the different proposals that were popping up around the country, and a lot of them were based on natural gas. Um, it was mm-hmm. the steam reformation that Corey just talked about. And, you know, we came together with labor leaders, academic institutions, uh, businesses, community groups, and said, like, what if we try to do it right? What if we actually try to have a hub that was uh, entirely or almost entirely zero emission energy? Um, starting with you know, green hydrogen, the renewable powered hydrogen that Corey talked about, and nuclear, because there's nuclear in the, in the grid and the, and the New Jersey side in particular, to then really focus on decarbonizing the, the tough to decarbonize sector. So things like industrial processes, so steel, cement, aluminum, like you heard in the president's clip earlier, the heavier fuel. So if you're big, you know, big trucks, big you know, marine vessels, uh, you know, airplanes, as, as, as Corey mentioned, the, you know, those, those things that really can't be electrified. Like we should be electrifying our homes, our cars, our, you know, a whole bunch of parts of the economy, but there's, you know, 15% of the, of the economy that's going to be hard to decarbonize without a, without a carrier of kind of high energy density like hydrogen. And, and so we started putting the pieces together across the three states because we have this rich history of manufacturing. We also have a, you know, a pretty um, tortured history with air pollution and particulate matter and high rates of asthma. And so if you could repower a lot of the existing sources of pollution across the region with green hydrogen instead of using diesel or, or fuel oil or, or natural gas, um, we could both strengthen our economic base and create you know, 20,000 labor jobs and at the same time reduce our air pollution by you know, our, our, our greenhouse gases by more than a million tons a year. You are hearing the voice of Colin O'Mara, board chair of Mach 2. That's this hydrogen hub that's being proposed for our region. We're also joined by Corey Budishak, who is a Temple University engineering professor. And together, they're trying to help us wrap our heads Mm -hmm. around this idea of a hydrogen hub here in the Philadelphia region. So let me uh, just 
talk a little bit about what you just said, Colin, about this idea of these hard to decarbonize parts of the economy. Is there not some sort of alternative where, hey, we don't fly planes or we simply find ways around using these processes instead of, you know, sort of investing in this seems like pretty difficult and, um, you know, energy intensive process to decarbonize them? How do you respond to that? I think, I think right now, I mean, we're, we're seeing a, a renaissance under President Biden's leadership around man- manufacturing and, you know, the, the steels and cements and chemical products of the future are going to need to be much less carbon intensive. I mean, around the globe, um, you know, as, as the power sector gets cleaner, the transportation sector and the industrial sector are becoming the most, you know, kind of polluting sectors that we have. And globally, I mean, tr- and the industrial sector is going to be the, the most polluting very soon. Um, if we still want to make things in this country, we're going to need, you know, high kind of energy dense, you know, sources of of power. Um, and, and hydrogen fills that role. I mean, there's just some things that you just can't really electrify. And, you know, unfortunately, we know that when, when things go overseas, they tend to be produced in places that have much lower environmental um, controls and protections that, that we have here. And so, you know, again, I mean, I think you know, we view this as a, as, a, as a sliver of a solution to a bigger kind of decarbonizing the region, decarbonizing country and decarbonizing the world puzzle. But it's an important one if we want to continue to make things here in, in, in Philly and across the Mid-Atlantic region. Yeah. And, and so, Corey, I want to talk about one of the things that Colin said, which he mentioned that the hub here, that Mach 2 would have um, green hydrogen. And there's a whole rainbow of mm-hmm. hydrogen, and it's all based on how the hydrogen is extracted. Can you walk us through the different types of extraction methods and their impact on the environment? Yeah, so I touched on this earlier, but the the green hydrogen is um, the basic idea. One really nice way to get hydrogen is something called electrolysis, Mm -hmm. which it's much more complicated than this. But just think about putting two pieces of metal and running electricity through it in water, and you get hydrogen bubbling off one side and oxygen bubbling off the other. So you're just splitting the water in half, basically. And that where that electricity comes from is where the hydrogen gets its color. So if we had green hydrogen, the electricity is going to come from renewable energy sources, um, such as wind or solar. Um, Pink hydrogen is generally denoted as the nuclear energy supplying that electricity. Um, The the kind of darker colors, the the biggest source of hydrogen in this country now is gray hydrogen. And that's that um, coming from natural gas or, or methane. So... Um, and, and that generally produces um, a good deal of carbon emissions. And the idea here, the idea, and this is, you know, mm-hmm. we'll see what happens, but the idea is that here would be green, right? Is that right, Colin? Yes, and, and there was there was a, a proposal about two years ago that some of the companies were proposing kind of starting with blue and then transitioning to green. And what we've seen throughout this country's history with ethanol and other things, we tend not to transition. And so the proposal that was approved by the, the Department of Energy is entirely uh, green, uh, green hydrogen, pink hydrogen. And then there's one project in Philadelphia where we're going to use some wastewater, some emissions from the wastewater treatment plant right in the city um, to, to, to create hydrogen from that. But there won't be a single fossil fuel in the entire, in the entire Mach 2 proposal as it's being implemented. Scorey, let me just ask you a question, uh, Corey Budishak from Temple University. You talk about this idea of taking green energy to fuel this process um, that would lead to the hydrogen energy being created. But someone might be thinking, well, you've got this solar and this wind. We only have so much of it. Let's just use it directly for powering homes and vehicles as opposed to diverting it into creating hydrogen energy. Talk about some of the trade-offs there and sort of uh, what you make of that argument. Yeah, and I think I think that's a great argument. And I think um, Colin alluded to this earlier, too, and I'll just kind of drive home the point, is that 
the elect we want to electrify as much as we possibly can because that takes a lot of the steps out. Any, anytime you transition energy from one form to another, going from electricity to hydrogen, say, you lose some of it, mm-hmm. right? So as much as humanly possible, we want to use the renewable electricity to power our homes, to power our cars, to do everything we possibly can with that. But that last 15, 20, 10 percent, depending on kind of how you measure it, is going to be really hard to do that. And that's why I gave that example of, say, an airplane. Right. Mm-hmm. We can't just you know, we're not going to run a power line up to an airplane and, and, and power yeah. it like that. Right. So so those are the types of things. And I think the investment coming now is laying the groundwork for that last kind of 15 percent. We kind of know how to get to do the 85 percent right now. We know how to put solar panels up. We know how to put wind turbines up. We know how to transition our homes all to electricity and our, our cars to electricity. It's that last little piece that this hydrogen is trying to solve. And I think what we'll see is that we're going to decarbonize, we're going to electrify and decarbonize those sectors first. And this hydrogen is going to be more into the future once we start getting, um, you know, trying to get really to net zero. That's the down the road. Right. And you just uh, heard the voice of Corey Budishak, a Temple professor in engineering. We're also speaking with Colin O'Mara. The chair, the board chair for Mach 2, it's the hydrogen hub that is going to be happening in our region thanks to funding from the federal government. We want to hear from you. You can call us and ask your question or provide your comment. Our number is 888-477-9499. You can also email studio2 at whyy.org. We got an email from John who says Chrysler Motors in 1964 introduced a hydrogen automobile and reported that the only visible discharge from the exhaust pipe was water. In the age of leaded gasoline, America's oil corporations made sure the hydrogen vehicle quickly disappeared. My question is, we've been talking about hydrogen as, you know, extraction and being used as an energy source for decades at this point. Why is now the right time? And and I ask you that, why hasn't it happened before? Yeah, and I think that's really funny, too, because um, I just looked up the year when I was when I was on my way here, but... Arnold Schwarzenegger has actually a really big, he used to have a Hummer, hydrogen Hummer Mm -hmm. in 2005, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And I think the big talk about hydrogen was not how it was being produced, but how it could potentially be used. The Mm -hmm. automobiles in the 1960s and the Hummer in 2005, right? And I think the big problem um, back then that they were trying to solve was to get rid of oil and to get rid of foreign oil. But what happened, what they realized is actually batteries were, were, were fine in that case. We could have mm-hmm. a Hummer EV. We could have the residential cars be EVs. Um, and the problem was is that if you actually looked, if you made that hydrogen with natural gas, the emissions from making that hydrogen from natural gas are way worse than just powering, even if you power a car all the way with coal electricity. Yeah. So so that's the, that's the kind of shift in thinking that we've had is that while you can do the, do those things with hydrogen, it's much more economically uh, beneficial, and um, and the technology is really there for the um, electricity to power those things. I want to read a quote here. This is uh, from a Cornell study, 2021. They're talking about blue hydrogen here, which is they try to capture some of the carbon that's emitted through the process, stored in the ground. So this is supposed to be cleaner than gray. And they said the carbon footprint to create blue hydrogen is more than 20% greater than using either natural gas or coal directly for heat, or about 60% greater than using diesel oil for heat. That is according to that Cornell research. So there's a lot of skepticism about gray hydrogen, mm-hmm. blue as well. This is supposed to be green, Colin O'Mara. Um, but I guess the skepticism around that is, can you do it cost efficiently? Um, so can you, Colin O'Mara, can you really create green hydrogen in a way that's competitive in the marketplace? Yeah, thanks, Avi. This has always been the question, right? And I think, you know, 
the, the, the long joke was that, you know, hydrogen is the fuel of the future and it always will be. Um, <laughs> right now, I mean, it still is, you know, three to four dollars a kilogram cheaper mm. to produce gray hydrogen than it is to produce green hydrogen. Now, fortunately, as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, the big that was included, the big climate package that President Biden signed uh, in August of 2022, that included a pretty significant incentive for, for green hydrogen, for zero emission hydrogen uh, of, of nearly three dollars a kilogram. Um, to try to basically make it cost competitive, um, both with both with dirtier forms of hydrogen, but also compared to like diesel and other fossil fuels that have huge fluctuations in the marketplace. But you know, we were able to kind of throughout the the Mach two process, we think we can get below kind of four dollars mm-hmm. a a kilogram, which is kind of the key point for mm-hmm. decision makers as they're thinking about should I invest in diesel or fuel oil or or, or use green hydrogen. Uh, but that's that 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 is the key question. And again, we want to make sure that you know the electrons that are being used for this purpose are specifically being used for those hard to decarbonize places and not being diverted elsewhere. But I mean that the, the cost question is going to really determine whether or not this is the way that we can both decarbonize and you know and, and hopefully expand our, our our manufacturing base in this region in the years to come. And we have a caller, but before we go to Ed, um, who's holding right now, I got to ask you a quick follow up question, Colin, about that, because one of the things that makes the hub in our region a little bit different than the others is this whole desire to retrofit the current um, existing infrastructure. How will that work and how will that get us to the price point that you just talked about? Yeah, And I appreciate the question, Cherry. And the the. When the refineries were built in this country at the, in the middle of the last century, there was actually a series of pipelines that were set up to connect. There used to be seven at the time. There's only four that are kind of partially operating right now. And, and one of those was actually to move hydrogen. Now, because of the potential for leakage, because you know, there's, you know, there's those, some of those lines are decrepit, um, we're actually going to, in some cases, replace, in some cases, re-sleeve and making sure they're very airtight because if, 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 if hydrogen does leak out of the system, it, it mm-hmm. does contribute as a greenhouse gas. But those existing right-of-ways won't cause additional environmental damage. It's a way to you know, move the product safely. And ideally, you have kind of distributed points of production you know, kind of throughout the system. So you don't need you know, additional kind of pipeline capacity, but it is one way to, uh, to move it efficiently from a producer to a consumer. And the lines that we're talking about, you know, they go by the Philly airport, right? They go right. through, mm-hmm. they go by the port, they go by, you know, all the places, a lot of the, like the, the, you know, the, the, the old PES facility where, where Hillco is going to be. I mean, there are a lot of these facilities um, that are either underway right now that could use hydrogen for these tough to decarbonize sectors are actually already on this existing infrastructure if we can modernize it and put it to better use. And people certainly know those landmarks. Thanks for that, Colin. I want to bring in a caller now. This is uh, Ed, who is on the line. Ed, you're on Studio 2. What's your question or comment? Yeah, hi. I just wanted to congratulate uh, Colin and the rest of the team, including Manny uh, with the city of Philadelphia for putting through the application and, and you know, and getting this uh, achievement. I think it's it's pretty wonderful. Um, I just went had a question around, um, you know, the blue hydrogen. Um, mm-hmm. Do you feel like that there's any, cap, you know, any, you know, capability of capturing, you know, using regenerative power with the solar, you know, or, or wind and be able to capture the um, the CO? And I'll drop off. Thank you. Yeah, can, can I uh, kick that to you, Corey? Sure. Uh, carbon sequestration is a big mm-hmm. talking point in this industry. I, I kind of am trying to understand how realistic it is. Can you help us out? Yeah. So when we talk about carbon sequestration, normally what we do is if we think about a coal-fired power plant would be the easy way to think about this, right? So coal-fired power plant has these big smokestacks going up. And the idea is we're going to capture that smoke capture the carbon dioxide that's in that smoke. And there's lots of different proposals of how you actually do this, but then we're going to bury it some way in the ground. So that's kind of the sequestration, right? 
The hard part is, is that when you when you start looking at the economics of this, is that you really have to spend a lot more energy to capture that and to compress it and to put it underground. Mm -hmm. So it depends on the estimates and the technology you're using, but it could be that you're using 20 to 50% more energy yeah. than just generating the electricity itself. So the economics kind of go away at that point, right? Because the economics of fossil fuels right now are really, or even, even more expensive in a lot of places than they are with renewables. So I, I worry that the technology might be able to work, but the but we're just using so much more energy and the economics just aren't there. If you, solar you could was still, do it, but what's the point? Almost yeah, at that point, right? Yeah, if yeah. solar was still three times more expensive than fossil fuels, then maybe we would think about it, right? Yeah. But like, but the economics just aren't there at this mm. point. And we want to bring in another caller. David from Highbridge has a comment about aircrafts. David, you are on Studio Two. What's your comment? Yeah, hi. You guys have been mostly talking about um, production, hydrogen production. Um, for uh, aviation use. I, I pretty regularly read um, like Aviation Week, uh, Space Technology Magazine. There's a lot of discussion in there. It seems like one of the main issues is the the storage, you know, the fuel tanks mm -hmm. on the potential aircraft. And I'm wondering if you could comment on that. That seems like a problem, like the tanks are heavy, um, you know, so there seems like there's a big trade-off, yeah. you know, with just as you were discussing with batteries. Yeah. yeah. Uh, maybe comment. Corey, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, yeah. That. So I think the big thing that I that I like to think about is you could definitely compress the hydrogen. There's really heavy tanks because it's such a light element. you got to compress it. It's heavy. Um, so I think the better solution down the road, and again, this is a down-the-road problem, I think, is we convert that hydrogen into – basically, we grab CO2 out of the atmosphere. We convert that hydrogen into any fuel that we want, any hydrocarbon fuel that we want. And then we can put that in our existing yeah. infrastructure. Um, again, the economics are always a concern there. They're not there yet. But that's that's where I think we're going to solve those problems instead of using the hydrogen on board. And, and I want to throw a question in here. We only have a couple more minutes. But, you know, the, the oil companies, fossil fuel industry, very happy about this whole idea of hydrogen being extracted. A lot of people say that's a red flag. I just want to get your quick comment on that. Um, because will this lead to, you know, just more fossil fuel usage? And, it, uh, you know, and can you comment on that, Corey and Colin, on that quickly? Yeah, so quickly, I think the big thing that why they're excited is because the hydrogen's a gas. Mm -hmm. they're, used to, they're used to making gas. They're used to transporting it. They're used to moving it around. So I think that they see, rather than something like solar, where they can't really, that's not their wheelhouse, right? They can't mm -hmm. compete there. So yeah. I think that's, that's kind of why they're more excited about this than they would be about something like solar or wind. And is that a red flag, though, Colin? Colin, yeah. Colin, you still with us? I think if we it's just another excuse. If it's just another excuse to you know to extract more natural gas, extract more you know kind of hydrocarbons, then then yes, it is a red flag. Mm -hmm. I think where where I get excited is that you know this this hub could create you know, thirteen thousand union construction jobs, about twenty thousand jobs total. And so as we're thinking about transitions, it's a way to really diversify the economy. And if it's cleaner from the start, you know, this, and I will say, I mean, some of the you know, some of the extractive um, oil and gas companies are less excited about our proposal than some of the others <laughs> using green hydrogen than, yeah. than blue hydrogen. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, it's no, it's something we got to keep an eye on. Absolutely, that is Colin O'Mara, board chair for Mach Two, this big proposed hydrogen hub in our region. Colin, thank you for joining us on Studio Two. Thank you so much for having me. And Corey Budachak, professor at Temple University's College of Engineering. Thanks for breaking it all down for us, Corey. Yeah, thanks for having me. I definitely learned something today. And coming up, lifting your spirits on this Tuesday afternoon with some music and exclusive interviews from WHYY's Lifting Voices and Praise. You know, everywhere I go, I've got to learn a child.
You're listening to Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg with my co-host Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And that was the voice of Sister Rosetta Tharp. She's credited as the first great recording artist of gospel music. Quite a legacy there. And she's actually buried at Northwood Cemetery right here in Philadelphia. I did not know that. Mm -hmm. Um, Cherry, we're starting the segment off with an original gospel icon because you were part of something very special, and you host a lot of events, but this one in particular celebrated gospel voices. Yes, I got to co-host WHYY's Lifting Voices in Praise competition, which wrapped up this weekend. It drew people from all over the region, some really impressive talent, and a joyful time overall. I thought since I had the inside scoop, I would share a behind-the-scenes look with you, Avi, and reveal the winners. The best youth choir Pine Forge. The high schoolers at Pine Forge Academy didn't just take home the award for Best Youth Choir. They also won Best Overall. Pretty impressive for these diverse young talents, but many of them are used to the attention. With a special emphasis on performing arts at Pine Forge, the choir travels to concerts, church services, and community events throughout the school year, across the United States, and even around the world. Here's PFA Choir Director Jarrett Roseborough. I'm so privileged to be able to work with these kids. I'm so proud of them. I'm so just proud of this. It's been an amazing evening. I'm speechless and just so grateful. And an amazing evening it was. Hundreds of people gathered at the Esperanza Arts Center in North Philadelphia for the Lifting Voices and Praise grand finale. I think it shows the wide-ranging draw of gospel music. I grew up singing it and was part of a choir in college at Boston University, and it was one of the highlights of my childhood and young adulthood. And then there's Philly. Of course, the godfather of gospel, Dr. Charles Albert Tenley, helped to usher in the sound of gospel right here in the city. So the double wins are special for Pine Forge because like gospel music and this city, the school has a rich and fascinating history. You know, they weren't allowing our kids into their schools. And so we just wanted to create a safe haven. Just the the spirit of the campus, it's actually built on one of the stops that used to be on the Underground Railroad. And so there's so much culture and heritage that goes into that place. The school was, in fact, used as an underground railroad terminal, and it's listed on the National Register of Historic Places. The institution opened in Pine Forge in Berks County in 1946 as a boarding school in the North for black students. And the students who sit in those seats today truly, they shook the building, and I mean shook it, and moved the audience to tears when they performed a composition that director Jarrett Roseborough strung together just for them. And there really wasn't anything that I could find that really just encapsulated all their energy, all their youthfulness. Um, and so I just, I was like, I'm, I'll put it together myself. It's my pleasure to deliver to you, our Studio 2 listeners, Pine Forge Academy Choir's winning performance of their original arrangement of the song titled, Soon We Will Be Done With The Troubles Of The World. Troubles of this whole world Going home to, to live with you. 
Now, it is a competition after all, but in my experience as the host of that competition and in hearing the judges and in just being a gospel music lover, I could tell you that when it comes down to it, this contest was about the celebration and uplifting of voices. It was not about the trophy. While the judges were tabulating the scores, we asked one of the pianists to play a bit and a spontaneous gospel sing-along broke out with singers coming down out of the stands. It was magical. It was joyful. Everyone was on their feet. What's so special about gospel music is that it can be hundreds of people singing together, chanting, clapping, stomping. It can be a lot of instruments. It could be one instrument or just a single person using the power of their own voice. The award for best soloist recognized the importance of talent like that, and it went to Keisha Lee. She's from Jackson, New Jersey, and like many in the gospel community, she had the music passed down in her family through generations. I'm super proud to have had my godfather on the keys and, you know, him just going in and doing what he does and what he loves and this is what we do he taught me everything i know keisha is a small business owner by day but also an accomplished singer gospel has taken her so many places including to the stage at the apollo theater in new york city something she's very proud of here is keisha lee at the lifting voices grand finale performing i sing because i'm happy hear her godfather on those keys just like she mentioned the other winners we are redemption they were a sister duo they won best ensemble and nick reynolds and family affair they won best adult choir all the performances amazing and heartfelt by the way i asked keontae moore a pine forest sophomore how he planned to celebrate his school's big achievement and here's what he said just go back to practice, keep practicing, make sure we're better next time. We might go out to eat, get some Chick-fil-A or something, but yeah, for back sure. Back to work. Back to work, straight back to work. Avi, mm. see, I can't sing, but if I could. <laughs> but you were in a choir. I, I was in a choir, but I was an alto and I was a blend. I could blend, but I was not like a solo artist like Keisha Lee. Yeah, here, you took but me there with that story. The building shook. The building shook. Mm. I'm telling you, man, it was like you cried, you laughed, you hugged people you didn't know. It was that kind of moment. Yeah. 
moments. It was those. Unfortunately, kind of we are out of moments today yes. in studio too. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray Bessler, who did a wonderful job mixing that Excellent piece, job, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer for more of our show. Head on over to whyy.org slash studio2 or download us wherever you get your podcasts from Studio 2 at WHYY. In Philadelphia, I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, these eyes that are strange things happening every day.